This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Reflective Leadership in High Performance Organizations. How Effective Leaders Balance Task and Relationship to Build High-Performing Organizations, and the authors are Nick Shepard and Peter Smith, and Nick and Peter join us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Nick. Hi, Steve. Pleasure to be with you. Great to have you with us, and hello, Peter. Hi, Steve. Great to be here. Thanks. I want to uh, introduce your book in this way. Uh, This book is much different than just looking at the bottom line. Obviously, the title talks about this reflective leadership, uh, this balance of task and relationship. Let me read what you two have written. This book, a different book on leadership that shows how the behavior and approach of the leader is at the heart of creating organizational competitiveness and sustainability through innovation, creativity, responsiveness, agility, and continual improvement. You also say this, this is a different type of book on leadership, which helps the leader to understand the effectiveness of his or her approach. Well, let's learn a little bit about you too. Uh, Nick Shepard, why don't we start with you? Well, Steve, I've uh, been running my own consulting business for about the last 20 years. Before that, I was in uh, general management. I was president of a uh, major Canadian distribution company. Um, Prior to that, I had a fairly lengthy career in finance with a CFO of a major, one of the major computer companies. But I had an interesting sort of personal background. Uh, I left school early, um, started out... uh, actually in the engineering business, in the entertainment business, an area that you kind of be familiar with, making uh, uh, pre-recorded music for industry, really fascinating stuff. Um, But one of the things I I learned over my career was that although in my time as the senior finance guy, uh, obviously the bottom line was critical, what I became to realize more and more was that, that focusing on the numbers was kind of focusing on the outcomes, which while important, um, is really putting the sort of the cart before the horse because creating an organization is what creates the capability to, to drive those numbers. And I became to realize that so many of the things that happen in, in organizations in new initiatives fail because really we don't have collaboration and support and cooperation in the business. So when Peter and I came together about 20 years ago and started working together, it was kind of a, a, a great combination of skills, I think. Peter, tell us about yourself. Well, um, my background is in working with people. I'm a mental health professional. Uh, I started my career about 35 years ago, going into social work, then moving into counseling and psychology. And I have my own practice in Ontario. Um, I went into private practice about 25 years ago, and um, a clinical practice working with individuals, couples, groups. And about that time I went into private practice, I was approached by somebody in the corporate world and who felt that what I had to offer 
clinically could also be offered to people within the corporate uh, or the workplace work, workplace situation. And uh, so I slowly developed um, not only my clinical practice, but, but my consulting work. And shortly thereafter, I met Nick, and we started working together, realizing that, um, you know, most people, not only within, not only individuals in the world, but people within organizations, really don't have a concept as to how their lives can change and how they can get out of the unbearable standstill and how we can help people move forward. And um, so that, that's basically it in a nutshell. And uh, so we continue to work together with various organizations in providing training, consultation, and so on. There's a multitude of books about improving business. Uh, Nick, why did you see a need to uh, uh, publish this book? Well, I think, Steve, one of the things that, that drives you to, to publish a book is if you have this sort of building passion about something you care about. And what, what I really care about is, uh, I guess, two things. One is I think it's absolutely critical for the success of free enterprise capitalism that we make the system work. And uh, I think a key part of that is making sure that we engage the people. Uh, one of the things that struck me through my whole career is the waste of resources that goes on in organizations, because really, uh, in, in many organizations, the people really don't want to be there. It's a job for them. It's nothing more than that. And, and it's really up to the leader to create the sort of the, the following and the hearts and souls and minds of the people in the organization, so they indeed develop a passion for the business, and, and the, the, the difference between organizations that do that and organizations that don't is striking. I mean, in, in today's reality, I can go out and buy, you know, if I'm a, a UPS or a FedEx, I can go out and buy a whole bunch of airplanes or trucks or, or, or hardware, but it's the, the capability of the people in the organization coming together to make the system work that actually delivers the uh, the sort of the competitive advantage. So that was the reason that I think, from my perspective, we wanted to put it down on paper, was to share this with people as a as a possible insight to get that breakthrough in in organizational performance that everybody's looking for. Peter, it's always important to have bean counters, as we often call them, the bottom line guys that keep track of <laughs> you know the uh, yeah. income, the. Exp- expenses. I mean, it's critical. Obviously, it's critical that the business maintain that uh, black ink, as they say, and not red ink. But mm-hmm. you know, there's much more to this. And you from the, the, your uh, more of a uh, you, your background being uh, what it is. Uh, how do you describe this relationship? What words would you use to tell managers, uh, business owners, what do they need to do with their people? Well, you know, um, Nick and I have done a fair amount of research into the question of task and relationship. And uh, what we find is that most organizations are highly task-driven. Let's say they'll score, on average, about an 8 out of 10. And then we look at relationship, and what we discover is, you know, most organizations, on average, would score about a 3 out of 10. So there's a great imbalance between task and relationship, you see. And what we're suggesting is that the stronger the, and the stronger the quality of relationships within the organization, the stronger the organization, because the organization is made of people, you see. And however, there seems to be a, a, a general lack of conscious awareness of the power of relationship in the workplace. 
you see. And so we rely on extrinsic rewards, uh, meaning external rewards, bonuses, pay raises, and all that. And when, very simply, it's the intrinsic rewards that really make a difference to people. Most people complain of a lack of inclusion, a lack of recognition, a lack of respect, you know. And so what we bring to the table is helping people to move from a very individualistically oriented perspective, which, of course, in North America or the Western world, we've grown up with individualism and based on independence, whereas we promote the power of interdependency, that we need each other, and the better we work together collaboratively, i.e. co-laboring together and communicating effectively, um, that, that is really what makes the difference within the organization, so in Nick, a healthy organization, yeah. So, Nick, are we talking about these people, your employees, they really need to believe and feel that you really care about them? Absolutely. Um, and I think one of the important things, Steve, is, and this is, again, why your, your initial question, you said, you know, why is the book different than other books? I think one of the things that that Peter and I have found over the years is that the, the danger is, that especially in the consulting business, uh, there, there is a challenge of focusing on either task or relationship in so many interventions that we see organizations put in place. Um, and our focus is it's not either or, it's both. And you have to work on both at the same time because the whole purpose of developing more effective teamwork, more effective leadership skills in an organization is to enable tasks to be done more effectively. As Peter mentioned, that organizations focus around 80% of their effort on task execution. And literally, the amazing thing is, Steve, I mean, they, they will spend billions of dollars. There was a, a great study published a couple of weeks ago in the U.S. that looked at, for example, at the uh, organizations implementing lean management techniques in Six Sigma. And I think it was something in the region of 70 or 80 percent of the people spending money on these major initiatives in their businesses were not getting the 5 percent performance improvement they were looking for. And when they went back and they said, what is the purpose? Why, why is it that we're not getting this? At least 30 percent of those people said that it's a failure for people in the organization to collaborate effectively. In other words, organizations are prepared to spend literally billions of dollars in task initiatives, but they, they shortchange the relationship part, which is the enabler of the task initiative to be effective. And whether it's putting, you know, total quality management in place, whether it's putting Lean, whether it's putting Six Sigma, um, whether it's putting a new software system in place, all of these initiatives are going to fail unless you get the engagement of the people in the organization. So the important thing about our focus is that this is not an either-or. It's not about getting the people to feel nice about themselves. It's about more effectively working together, as Peter said, to collaborate to do the job. So, yeah. Peter, we're really talking about the essence of good teamwork. This is the bottom yeah. line. Yes. Yeah. Well, good teamwork is, you know, we use the metaphor of the shamrock for good teamwork, and that is how well... How well does this group of people communicate, collaborate, coordinate their efforts? And, and what's, the level of what's the level of commitment, not only to the task, but what is the level of commitment to each other, you see? And uh, what we find is, um, in, in our work is that uh, often that commitment isn't balanced between, again, between task and relationship, you see. 
And, you know, the relationship, the part of the relationship uh, that is critical to effectiveness is, is people knowing that they care about each other. When I started work with Nick and he was part of a, a group of uh, consultants, mostly they were engineers and accounting types like Nick, and they looked at my work as kind of, that they used to refer to it as the, the soft, fluffy stuff, you know, and I, <laughs> I used to feel quite uh, a little offended because I would say, you know, this is the hard work. If it's so soft and fluffy, why, why, is, why isn't everybody doing it? Yeah. You know, and when I started talking about, you know, the concept of loving your employees and your, and your customers Whoa. and your customers, yeah. you know, I mean, I, we, we subscribe to the notion of, wonderful Eric Fromm, who, who defined love as caring, respecting, responsibility, and understanding. And so there's, you know, in, in taking that perhaps different perspective, that different paradigm, the love paradigm versus the everyday power paradigm, power over others versus power with others, um, we're talking about a, a different mindset, which we have seen um, will produce and does produce more effective results for the organization at the, um, you know, at the production level, quality level, but also, of course, at the team level. Nick, you use Toyota as an example of a well-run company and, of course, organizations uh, try and apply uh, lessons from what you can learn from Toyota. Tell us about why you, uh, you set those up, set Toyota up as that model. Um, good question, Steve. I mean, one of the things that I know, I know talking about Toyota, especially in the North American environment, uh, uh, and, and especially if you're talking to people in the automotive industry, can evoke uh, um, very strong feelings, both positive and negative, in terms of the, uh, what goes on. What, what I think Peter and I admire about Toyota, and one of the things that uh, we talk about in the book is, in fact, a model that we've developed called the RP5 model for leadership and management. If one looks at that model, the foundation uh, of, of the organization's success is what we call the mission, the vision, and the values of the organization. Um, one of the things that Jim Collins talked about a lot in his books of good to great and built to last is the fact that, that organizations, truly successful organizations, do many, many things right. It's not just that they, you know, a visionary organization has a vision. It's got to be much more than that. And in our particular focus, we say for a task perspective, you've got to have a clear understanding of the organization, of where it's going and what it's doing. And everybody needs to understand what's my piece of that. Um, in, fa in fact, if you look at Buckingham's book, um, First Break All the Rules, that came out a few years ago, they talk about the two most fundamental things in an organization that people need to be able to answer with a high degree of positive uh, response is, do I know what we're trying to do in this organization? And do I know what my roles and responsibilities are related to that? The second question is, do I have the tools and equipment necessary to do my job effectively? Now, a good leader is making sure that people have that. But that's our task focus. Equally important at the bottom of the organization as a foundational piece is what we call the organizational values. And that's one of the things Peter and I work with organizations to help them clarify. Because most organizations have values, but they're very often... Uh, um, sort of almost subversive values. You know, they've, they've developed without a conscious effort of the organization, especially from a corporate governance perspective, to actually say, what do we stand for? What behavior is acceptable in this organization? And that really, effective values, is really about organizational behavior. It's about the way in which we do the things that we do. 
And so we believe very much that it's like the yin and the yang that Jim Collins talks about in his book, that you've got to have both of these. You've got to have clarity of purpose, and you've got to have clarity of behavior. And that's the foundation, and I think very much that's the culture uh, which in our IP, RP5 model we show as being built through those two pieces, the culture is what makes Toyota unique. They have created an environment where they, for example, when they developed something like uh, the Kanban system years ago, when they developed things like lean management, when they, they work with their supplier relationships, they're all based on a particular way of behaving. And that's what differentiates them. And we see so many failures in, in people... In, in North America in particular, who will go and take, you know, lean management as a technique, or they will take TQM as a technique, and they'll try and bolt it onto their organization as, as a process-based technique, and yet they won't understand that it works within an environment of an effective leadership culture. And that's really the big thing about Toyota, is that it's that long-standing, foundational, fundamental approach to leadership, which incidentally, Steve, one of the things that I think we have a bit of concern about from a corporate governance point of view is, is uh, we have seen in North America in the last few years with uh, the, 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 the real pressure for organizational performance, we've seen very, very great increase in the turnover of CEOs in many organizations. I think personally that's a prescription for disaster because you cannot lead effectively until you build trust. Peter talks about love. A key part of that is trust. Uh, a leader can't build trust if they're only in the position for a year, 18 months, or two years. And if you see what differentiates a good organization, very often it is that consistency of leadership. Uh, uh, there was a, um, a great leadership book uh, written by a gal, uh, Mary Beth, I forget her surname, in California, uh, called Jesus Christ CEO. The point that she was making is that, that one person can make a profound difference to the way in which an organization works and to the values with which an organization does what it does. And, and her point was very valued. It comes back to leadership. So it sounds like to me it's not only the brains, it's the heart that's got to be part of a successful business. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've been listening, everyone, to Nick Shepard and Peter Smith. They are the authors of their book, Reflective Leadership in High-Performance Organizations. How Effective Leaders Balance Task and Relationship to Build High-Performing Organizations. Nick, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available through any of the, uh, the major bookstores, Barnes & Noble. Uh, um, uh, you can certainly get it on the iUniverse uh, website. iUniverse is uh, the U.S.-based publisher that we work with in developing this book. And a, a little bit of a plug for iUniverse, great organization for anybody who's interested in sort of doing some self-publishing. Um, so you can Google it. It's available in hard copy, hardcover. It's available in softcover. And, of course, in this day and age, it's available as a downloadable iFormat. Well, thank you again, gentlemen, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. All the best. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle, and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 Central on toginet.com. You're simply the best. 
Donna is a charismatic, market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Infocasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Victor Frankel, the inspiration for the movie, Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, I Will Never Forget, a daughter's story of her mother's arduous and humorous journey through dementia. And the author is Elaine C. Purera. And Elaine joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Elaine. Hi, how are you? Well, this is a very difficult journey, obviously, more than any of us can imagine unless we have been involved in it like you were the caretaker, like the caregiver, as we say, right? Yes, yes. Your mom, uh, 85 years young, and then it happened. So let me read what you have written just a, a little bit more to set the stage here. You say, I wrote, I will never forget. To highlight my talented mother's tragic but also humorous journey with dementia. Through delightful stories of my childhood, I reveal my mom's character and unveil how our mother-daughter roles changed as I give back to her. Well, and that's when you become the caregiver, the roles certainly change. They do. Very much so. So... Uh, obviously, a very difficult journey. What was it, three-year journey? Yeah, I would say that was pretty accurate. She was pretty functional to maybe around age 84 or so, and then there were these little um, hiccups or unusual behaviors, demeanors, or lack of uh, logical thinking that got my attention, but not enough yet to make her dysfunctional or for it to appear to me that she was dysfunctional and she and she wasn't she really was more the glass half full than half empty at that time so what's give us some examples of those hiccups as you called them probably one of the first ones as i recall was um she lived in kalamazoo michigan and sadly my dad and my brother died 
the same year, 2004, and in the fall, in the, I'm sorry, in the winter, in February of 2005, my mom decided to go visit her nephew, which was something she had always wanted to do. He lived in Sedona, Arizona. It's a great time of year to go, and her sister-in-law, my cousin's mom, was also going at the same time. But my cousin, Mike, told me that the first morning she was there, she became very agitated and confused, and she was looking through his house for her apartment. She thought she was still in Kalamazoo. Mm. And at the time that Mike shared this with me, I remember thinking that this was a woman still in shock and in grief, having buried two people, one of which was her son. Um, and yeah, so I, I was a little dismissive to that being our first evidence of hiccup, as you, as I put it, but not long after things started to be more obvious to me. And so then one of the next ones was her asking me what kind of car I was driving, which is an odd question because she wasn't really into cars. But the point was that even after I told her, she asked again. And I would tell her again. And this went on several times before I realized that she did not remember having asked me the question already. And that is more indicative than not remembering the answer. So we had two of these very fairly close, like within six months. And my radar was up, but as I said before, I still saw a lot of functional things. And these were the two that, in retrospect, were not reflective of grief and are not consistent with just extreme sadness or, or whatever. This is an indication of, of a disorientation and a dysfunction. I didn't quite label it that way, but it did turn out to be the case. So never assume anything when you witness something that, that is really out of order. Yes, I think that's very well put. Um, I don't want, there's a, there's a line between being proactive and overreactive. And I think the, part of the message here is note that these are characteristic behaviors. Start journaling them. That mm. probably is my single most strongest piece of advice to everyone out there who's not sure what's going on. Because later on, as I looked at my journal entries, I could see that what had started out as one notation or one situation per one or two per year turned into one or two per month and then per week, and then they were much more frequent. And seeing that increased frequency in black and white was very helpful to me coming on board and understanding what I was dealing with. And that can be the same for others, too. How did you select the title for the, of the book? Um, I, there were different reasons. Basically, in the end, even though my mother could not articulate my name and she did not beam to, the, to my face to the, as I entered the room, I still felt there was a connection, and she had used my name correctly a couple weeks before she passed away. So I felt fairly 
sure that she did not forget me. Um, and then, by contrast, I know it's a phrase that we use all of the time. Well, people say, I'll never forget that, or, I'll never forget this. And in the end, sometimes we do. But what was really critically important to me was the hope that she would not forget me. And I feel fairly confident that she didn't. And that's hence the title. Now, you have some uh, incredible uh, scenes in this, as we'll call yeah. them, in, the, in this <laughs> book. You know, moments of time where, you know, you even uh, uh, kind of named them um, in an interesting way. I love this one that was Houdini Mom. Tell us about that. <laughs> Houdini Mom, it was that experience um, that probably solidified the commitment on my part to really make this book a, a tangible entity and not just talk about it. My mom was in a um, assisted living facility, locked down, and due to the errors of a couple of staff members, she managed to get outside at roughly 2 o'clock in the morning in Michigan in early April in a winter day still. It was 25 degrees outside, and she was not found for almost five hours. She was in only a pair of pajamas. My mother is very small, very petite. She had uh, no slippers, no robe, hat, gloves, coat, nothing. By the time she was found, she was severely hypothermic, but she she did rally, surprisingly. I mean, she lived, which is the biggest surprise. But that chapter called Houdini Mom, that escapade and escape was so, um, it, it's just amazing in a, in a sort of surreal way. It was hardly a positive thing. But shortly before this took place, my mother had started to talk about her mother, my grandmother, who passed away when I was six. So I didn't know her very well. But my mom talked about her mother a lot, and it was starting to increase. And I have this feeling that in her warped and, and unreal world, it's possible that my mom ventured outside when the opportunity presented itself to try to find her mother, which has a, a metaphysical, cosmic kind of message in and of itself. But nonetheless, she obviously inadvertently put herself in at great risk, as did a couple of irresponsible caretakers. But that's the, the premise of the story without giving it away. Why is it so important when you're being this caregiver to someone with dementia or Alzheimer's that you, as you put it, take comfort in knowing you are not alone? Why is that so important? Well, you said that before we started the interview that you and I are of a comparable age, and yet you don't happen to have anyone that you can think of who's experiencing this with their parents or aunt, uncle, sister, friend, whatever. So if this type of, um, of these behaviors and this bewilderment 
is completely unfamiliar to someone, they they don't necessarily have an automatic resource or or set of comfort zone. And if you seek some camaraderie, it will be possibly with among strangers. Not that that's bad, but it's different if your friend's parents or your friend is going through what you're going through and sentences don't have to be so fully explained. I mean, when you talk about the fact that my mother's reality was anything but real, if you know what that feels like, if you've witnessed that, then that makes sense to you. If if this is an unfamiliar experience, I think people think they're alone, and it makes it's natural to assume that. I didn't happen to know other people who had dementia around me, and yet I was very familiar with the medical aspects of it just because I have training as a therapist. This is not my area of expertise, but it was not a completely unfamiliar area. But still, when you see it in your own family member, you're almost too close to it to be objective. So I think that's why, that's part of the reason I wrote the book is, and I hope it came across successfully, I believe it has, in helping people to see the gradual deterioration in this particular case of my mother might be what they're seeing too. And then you start seeing these little hiccups, as I call them, or these little breaks. And you chalk up the first couple years worth possibly to just, quote, old age, unquote. Except that old age does not necessarily mean that someone's going to have significant forgetfulness. So at, at some point, it's no longer that little piece, but it's something much more than that. And I think people will be comforted. Everyone is. There's some um, misery loves company is kind of the expression. And, and although I don't think that's the most appropriate phrase here, it nevertheless is meant to embody to people that if you're going through this, please don't think of yourself as the only one, that there are resources and there are people, even if you don't know them, who have walked in your shoes and know what it's like to have the same question asked of them repeatedly or have someone who used to be an avid reader not be able to follow a recipe card anymore. So that's what I meant. We've got about three minutes left, and I want to make sure we have time for you to read your poem that's uh, okay. at the end of your book, uh, I will, titled I Will Never Forget, because it sums up everything so well. But I just wanted you to also say something about this statement that you make, the importance of, as you put it, glean comfort from your faith. Yes. Um, for me, the faith comes in many forms. My mother was a devout Catholic, and that would have been her source. I'm a little more um, kind of eclectic, but for me, I felt my brother's presence, and that was my source of faith and comfort, as I felt he guided me at times, or he was with me through this difficult phase. Um, so I, I mean it in a broad sense, but there is, everyone I think pretty much has either a very traditional faith model, like my mom, or perhaps you, 
But those of us who don't have a strong uh, brick-and-mortar church-type faith faith relationship, we still have, I think, a faith set of either friends or just thoughts or metaphysical experiences that we can draw on that will help us through. Please, in closing, read your poem, I Will Never Forget. I will never forget. I don't remember where I am. I really can't add two plus two. I don't recall what you just said. I'm sure it's sweet if I just knew. You asked me what I did today, but I just don't have a clue. Yet still, I will never forget how very much I love you. I don't know what clothes to wear. I need depends to hold the pee. My hands tremble when I eat. My hearing's gone, though I can see. The apartments here all look the same. If I'm in your bed, please let me be. Yet still, I will never forget how very much you love me. I don't know what season it is. The days all seem to be the same. I told God I was ready to go, and soon I'll join my boys and Wayne. I think your face is familiar to me but I don't always recall your name. Yet still, I will never forget that you are my daughter, Elaine. Oh, very beautiful. Very well Thank said. You. And I guess the only thing we can say to that is amen. Yes, very well I said, agree. Elaine. Well, tell Thank us you. how to get your book, I Will Never Forget, a daughter story of her mother's arduous and humorous journey through dementia. Of course, it is available through iUniverse, softcover and hardcover. It's also available through Barnes & Noble and Amazon, and includes the Kindle and the Nook versions. Well, thank you, Elaine, so much for being with us thank on you. iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Hey, moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamamanyhats.com. 
She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of many hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Who's Running This Town Anyway? New Dimensions of Local Government Leadership. And the author is Dr. John C. Beekner. And Dr. Beekner joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dr. Beekner. Good morning, and thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, this is a whole new view of government leadership and who really is running this town. Uh, you know, a lot of times we say that. What in the world are they doing down at City Hall, right? That's, <laughs> that, that's correct. And yeah. uh, as I think I point out in the, in the little book is that my perception is, is that many people are not uh, involved enough. They're may be apathetic, but they are mostly neutral till something disadvantages them or they become inconvenienced by something. We usually use potholes and traffic lights and so forth. Then they ask, who's running this town anyway? And by that time, it's a little late. Yeah, well, you say this is not a textbook, not a training manual. It's a discussion takeoff point for analyzing government today. And boy, do we need to analyze uh, you know, this book addresses a number of issues in today's political world, primarily who governs and how. That's correct. Um, the textbook idea I didn't want to do, and I didn't want to do memoirs, and I didn't really want to do a training manual. Uh, what I wanted to do was pique people's interest to look at uh, local government, first of all, to look at it and even to think about it, and then secondly, to be able to have a discussion about how decisions are made, how to become effective in this day and age. The, the basic underlying, or one of the basic underlying points, is that we've run out of structures, that is, charters, forms of government, and so forth locally, that you can tweak it here and there, but by and large, there's no new structure that becomes available to make government more effective. That means, from my point of view, that because of that, we start. To th we should start to think about who's actually sitting at the, at the council table or the governance um, table and uh, how well they perform. Because my experience is, is that when things go wrong sometimes in particularly cities, maybe school boards, county commissioners, they say, well, let's just change the form of government somehow, and that'll solve the problem. And my basic philosophy is is the, that's not the problem. Dr. Beekner, tell us about yourself, your uh, academic background, your mm -hmm. uh, government background. Well, I'm very fortunate. I have a bachelor's in political science and master's in public administration and a doctorate in political science. And when I finished my doctorate, um, I moved to Boulder, Colorado, and in the first month here, I was appointed to a city board, a city zoning board. And from then on, I was able to keep my position at the university and serve on the city council uh, twice in Boulder and was mayor and was, at one time, I was on the council and elected to the legislatures doing both at the same time. 
So I was, fortunately, I was able to continue my academic uh, career and ended up being president of the University of Colorado. And um, during all that time, I was able to uh, work also with cities and agencies across the country. Uh, really, but I didn't have a, a formal company. It was uh, simply uh, word of mouth. And I would go into cities and try to help city councils become more effective. And that was my goal, wasn't to uh, judge them or uh, in any way to be uh, pejorative about the, what they're doing, although there were a couple cities that I think they needed to start over, to tell you the truth. But um, so academically, uh, I was fortunate to, to mush together my interest academically, my administrative role, and then my political role so I could be involved. And I just finished a... Um, second term, term, finished out a term in the town of Lafayette where I live on the city council there. So I've actually served on city councils in two different cities. Why do you say many in elected office are not prepared for working in the environment in which they have been put? There seems to be an emphasis on environment. Well, um, I think that you change um, my personal view is, is that uh, you, you change the environment or the culture, if you want to use that term, uh, how decisions are made. And I, I believe a lot of people get elected to local offices without having um, ba basically an understanding of how you assess the common good, how you use your leadership talents, how you can gain new talents, and uh, as a result, the government decisions are made um, not illegally, not fraudulently, um, but then after a while, you begin to say, well, what about the big issues? What about what are we going to do down the road? And like the present time, in my own community, we, we have a drought, and we've got now a watering issue. And uh, so the, in terms of watering lawns and gardens and um, so do we have enough reserves? Well, fortunately, this city government did plan ahead, and they have water rights where they're able to um, survive and not not uh, in the opulent way, but survive. So when I say they're thrust into an environment, I truly believe that sometimes people get elected to local governments because of um, possibly somebody just um, saying, why don't you do it, <laughs> without describing what doing was. It's not like joining the Elks Club. <laughs> no, for big reasons, uh, all of a sudden you're thrust into a position where you're spending everybody's money, other tax money. Well, that's true, and that there's a belief, I think, by many local governments that that, that that's uh, always going to be there, that there's always going to be enough money. But if you just noticed this last week or so, mm. three cities in California have gone bankrupt. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Stockton's one of them and San Bernardino. So um, somebody wasn't minding the store 
to let it get to that point. And that's the title of the book. Who's running this town anyway? <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's what I get. Nobody's right. running it. It's running amok. <laughs> could be. Yeah. That's good. Yes. And, uh, not all cities are, as I point out, the sky isn't falling, but with now the new technologies, the younger population, um, neighborhoods and homeowners associations are becoming more of a focal point, mm-hmm. and um, you can end up having an interest group formed through technology uh, overnight without ever meeting any of the people face-to-face. Right, right. So why, you say, uh, effective governance is more uh, important than structural organization? Yes, uh, only, only, only because, there, there, with few exceptions, there, there are no, the, the structures, we've run out of types of structures to have. I mean, Dade County, Florida was maybe the first to have uh, a metropolitan-wide uh, city-county kind of government structure, and it was fraught with, and still is fraught with, as far as I know, with a lot of legal suits. Um, but you have the council manager system, you have the strong mayor system, commission system. You can go down the list, and pretty much it wouldn't take long for a group of graduate students to say there's probably about six possible combinations that you could have of a structure so the structure there's no there's no new way to solve the problem there the problem is in the people who are in in the structure we're trying to make it work that's the issue so those who will will be our future city councilmen women those who will be on the school board uh, we've got to do somehow we've got to do a more effective way in training them preparing them Absolutely, and it's not just looking at a budget or looking at the yeah. annual report or PR stuff. It's looking at how are you going to get along with um, a diverse um, council of however you want to break that down, and how are you going to make decisions um, without being locked into just a only one size fits all, um, because. Uh, I see this with school boards sometimes. They're where they're they're you know they're influenced by parents. They're influenced by, um, but they're mostly influenced by budgets. And at some point, somebody's going to say, "Wait a minute, maybe we're doing this whole thing wrong, and maybe we may have to make some serious uh, cutbacks mm-hmm. instead of simply raising money. Maybe we ought to start cutting back on some things." And get out some of the non-essentials. Yeah, it's some, and it's uh, a tough decision. Sure, I mean, it takes strong leadership to do that. As someone said, you know, government doesn't have a, a revenue problem; it has a spending problem. No, well, I totally agree with that. Yeah. So, you, you say that there's there's really a call for a new leadership paradigm. We've got to just step outside the box somehow. Yeah, I, I call for uh, what I called in the in the little book a Renaissance leader, and that he, he or she is a person who is not locked into a position from issue to issue. Um, that basically they look at the issue that's before them, and one week it might be a down zoning, and the next week there might be a down zoning issue, but is not he's not held or she's not held to. Um, 
having a decision made solely on the basis of what the last decision was. Maybe this situation is different. There's also just room for emotion. Um, you know, not everybody comes in with a, a spreadsheet of some kind. Um, we have people that actually say, look, I don't want the street going through my corner of my lot. <laughs> and that's the fact. And maybe the city ought to say, well, this is a situation where we don't, we won't do that. We'll, we'll make mm-hmm. the adjustment because of the good of the people. Hmm. You say there's a need to review history and see where much can be gleaned from such a review. True. Uh, there's enough. There's certainly enough written about uh, how cities, uh, in particular, but governments have have been successful and have and those that have failed not only nationally but internationally. And what I think we need to do is once in a while go back and just read the classics and look at what happened and get a picture that that some of the things that are going on today in this country, as far as I'm concerned, have been demonstrated in other periods of time. And we need to learn from those things and um, there's some things that you can learn. I mean, obviously, you can learn how not to do something as well as how to do something. So we just need to learn as councils to change some rigid habits that aren't working anymore. Well, that's what I think. I think you've got to try to create a way in which um, you begin to the proverbial think out of the box kind of thing. We got to first of all know what box you're in. That's my view. That a lot of people don't know. They'll say, "Well, we need to be bold. We need to think out of the box." Well, where are you now? What have you done? What what can be done? And it's not all revenue based. A lot of it is simply getting back to the principle of the common good. What's the common good? And every community is different. The sense of community. The, history, the, the background, the geography, the, the, all of that is is different. And you can't just say one size fits all. You, you, you can't try to copy what uh, another community is doing. I can give you many, many examples where city governments have said, well, the town next door is doing it this way. We want to be like them. Well, you, you can't do that. you got to say we're, we have to create our own model. We have to create our own... Uh, persona, if you will, for a community. And a sense of community is very, very hard to develop. Hmm. Very difficult. Because people live in neighborhoods now. People communicate differently now. And I know it sounds trite, but the homeowners associations sometimes become a replacement for decision making. Hmm. So the local government problem uh, maybe just a, a one example of what's wrong with politics in general in this day and age well there's that there's the, the first side is is of that argument is in, in that position is is that people are apathetic well um, there's another argument that could be made that if everybody voted who could vote, you may end up with something that's wrong, that's worse. <laughs> I, bet I wrote a paper once in graduate school said, titled, Let's Not Get Out the Vote, <laughs> based, 
based on that because my uh, gosh, look what you might have. Yeah. So, um, can can a little book like this get, prompt people to suddenly say, jump up and down and say, yeah, yeah, it's this is the way to go. It's not a it's not intended to do that. It should be a jumping off point for discussions about what kinds of leadership uh, is needed in local governments today. And when I say local governments, I mean all cities, states, uh, county commissioners, school boards. And um, I had one person who read the book said, well, I didn't learn anything new in the book that I didn't know before. I said, well, you know, I've read, I've read a lot of books that I didn't learn anything new, but it inspired me to want to do more. That's really what you want to do. It, no, it's not a training manual. Um, uh, like, there are plenty of those out in, in, in workshops and seminars and so forth. We've been listening to Dr. John C. Beekner. He is the author of his book, Who's Running This Town Anyway? New Dimensions of Local Government Leadership. Dr. Beekner, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's through, it's published by, um, printed by iUniverse. Uh, and you can get it through Amazon and probably Barnes and & Noble. And you can download it and um, or you can buy it. It's, it's meant to be easily accessible and inexpensive. Uh, I'm not, I didn't write this to to make money uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I simply decided after 40-some years of doing both the academic and the, the real world, as they say, that maybe I could put together my thoughts on uh, where we're going in, in government and what are the dimensions of leadership. There are hundreds of books if you do a literature search on leadership. And th this is not... Uh, you know, how you, you become an, a leader. It's how the council as a whole can be, the paradigm can shift, as they say, uh, to become effective. And uh, there are plenty of examples where councils are ineffective, and I can, and I can we could spend a long time <laughs> talking about that from Maine to California. But um, by and large, well-meaning people run for city council but by and large, many of them have not had the, the environment to work in where decisions have to be made, revenues have to be looked at with expenditures, and maybe you might end up having to say, as you pointed out, we're done spending. Right. Yeah, we're done, done spending. spending. Yeah, that's a tough statement to make. Well, uh, of course it is, because everybody's got a... Yeah. They've got a stake in the thing, and you've got stakeholders wanting, uh, I used to tell my students, you've got more people wanting to talk about what they want rather than what they need. And what they can afford. Yeah. So, well, Dr. Beekner, thank well, you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, it's very nice of you to call me. I enjoyed it, and I hope that, um, you know, maybe somebody will pick up the book, and I hope that you enjoy it as well, and good luck to you, and I'll look up Team Pack. Com, by the way. Fantastic. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. 
Radio with a cutting edge.